Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you ever had a point, or maybe points, in your spiritual journey where you wonder whether Jesus really is the Son of God? How did you feel? And would it help to know you're not the only one? Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, A Season of Anticipation, with this sermon entitled Rejoice Today, which covers Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning, Perimeter Church. We're glad you're here with us in this Advent season as we're celebrating the King who has come and is coming again. And if you've been here these last two weeks, Jeff has been setting up this idea of Advent that we are people who on the one hand have a King who has come into this world, who has come to save, but on the other hand, we are living in this world where there is this tension between what Christ has already done and then the redemption that he is still yet, that he is yet to bring in full, the redemption that's going to come when he returns. And Jeff, last week, he introduced us to this figure, a figure that most of us are familiar with, this man named John the Baptist, a man prophesied by the prophet Isaiah who is preparing the way for the Christ. This king who was supposed to come and redeem this broken world, a man who models for us what it is to prepare for that same Savior's return. But as we come into our text today in Matthew chapter 11, things have changed. John is not standing in front of crowds and preaching to them to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not baptizing them in the waters of the Jordan. Instead, John, John is in chains because John has done that thing that faithful prophets do. He has preached the message of repentance, not just to beggars in their rags, but to kings in their robes. And when he heard that King Herod, the man who ruled over Judea, had stolen his brother's wife and claimed her as his own, John, John didn't turn a blind eye and he didn't pretend it didn't happen. John, he called him out. And Herod did, Herod did what tyrants do. Herod threw him in prison because he wanted him to shut up. And so John, prophet of the Lord, he is sitting in a prison cell waiting for what he knows is almost certainly his death. And there is this unsettling question that's beginning to worm its way into his mind. The question is probably as unsettling to him as it is to us. What if, what if in all these things I've been wrong? And what if the one I pointed to, what if he was the wrong one? And here's what it says, starting in verse two. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, the Christ, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed, joyous, happy is the one who is not offended by me. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask, take this text. Lord, this gift where you make yourself known to your people and we pray through your spirit, give us eyes to see you in your beauty and in your glory and Lord, hearts that would receive the redemption that you offer us in Christ. We need you this morning. We don't need me. We don't need something that we can concoct ourselves. We need Jesus Christ and we need him now. So come now in his name. 
Amen. When I was in college, uh, I was obsessed with this singer-songwriter called Sufjan Stevens, and I probably drove my roommates absolutely insane because I only had two of his CDs, and I would just play them on repeat all day long. And if you've ever listened to any Sufjan Stevens, you know uh, that that experience can be kind of polarizing. You may love him or you may absolutely hate him. Well, I loved him and continue to love him, because when I listen to Sufjan Stevens, you see this marriage of what on the one hand I think is beautiful art, but on the other, there is this real and honest grappling with the Christian faith. And nowhere does that grappling show itself more clearly than a song of his on his album, Illinois, called Casimir Pulaski Day, a song that he named after the day when he found out that one of his childhood friends was dying of bone marrow cancer. And the song, the song is a little boy who is now a grown man, remembering everything that happened before his friend died. He's remembering how his friend's father wept and cried because he didn't know how to show his daughter how much he cared for. He remembers the Bible study that came around his friend and laid their hands on her and prayed and begged that God would make her well. He remembers the last moments that he had with her, seeing the way that she ran and the way her shirt came untucked and her shoes came untied, and he remembers. He remembers the moment when the nurse walked into the room and told them that she was gone. And he looks out the window and he sees the beauty of God's creation. This world that every time he had looked at it before, it always testified to him of a God of mercy and of love and of kindness who provides for his creatures. But now, when he looks out that window and he sees that beauty, it's complicated. And the last line of the song is this. All the glory when he takes our place but he took my shoulders and he shook my face and he takes and he takes and he takes. He sees on the one hand the God that he knows, the God who loved him and gave himself for him, this God that we see in the face of Jesus Christ, but then on the other, he sees this experience that he cannot reconcile with that knowledge and he does not know what to do. That kind of wrestling, that's not alien to the Christian faith. You know, when we hear stories like that, when we think about doubt in our own lives, we, we get uncomfortable. We think of it as something that we should hide, as something that we should be ashamed of, and you even see that in the interpretation of our text today. Over the years, as you read through the commentators, you see there's time and time again, men who usually are really good expositors of scripture, they come to Matthew 11 and they start trying to find every excuse possible for John because they cannot wrap their heads around how you could have someone who could look at Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who could call everyone to repent, who could stand so strong and so unwavering in the face of persecution and then suddenly have questions. And so they say, a man of faith wouldn't do that. That question can't be John's. That question has to be one he's asking for the sake of his own disciples. But all you have to do is read over the rest of the story of scripture to realize that that idea 
that people of faith don't have questions and they don't grapple with doubt. That's just not true. Look at Abraham. Look at Elijah. Look at Jeremiah. Look at the Psalms, how time and time again, God's people in Psalm after Psalm are saying, God, here is who we know you to be, but here's our experience and we don't know how these things go together. Over and over, you see God's people saying, God, we believe, help our unbelief. To wrestle with faith, to wrestle with doubt, that's not alien to the Christian life. Rather, that is part of the experience of every single Christian who lives in this world, we are caught between the king who has come and the king who is still yet to return. And this is what makes Matthew 11 such a gift. Matthew 11 not only tells you that you are not alone, that even the greatest of the prophets struggles. Matthew 11, it shows you where to go. It says you don't need to despair. You don't need to give up hope. You don't need to take your doubts and shove them away into some hidden place. You don't need to be ashamed. Instead, you can come and you can lay your questions at the feet of the one who gives rest to his people. The king who has come and is coming again and who says to you, my ways may not be your ways and my thoughts may not be your thoughts, but blessed is the one, joyous is the one, who is not offended by me. Come to Jesus with your questions. It's what John does. It says in verse two that when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Christ that Isaiah spoke of, the one who's gonna redeem every broken things, or shall we look for another? Just like Sufyan in that song, just like so many of us in our lives, John, John is facing something that he didn't expect. And you know, this is hard, I think, for us to grasp because we are so familiar with the story of Jesus that as we read through the gospels, we look at all these things that Jesus is doing and all the things he's saying, and we think, well, of course he's the Christ. I mean, the dead are getting up. Blind people are seeing, the deaf are hearing, lepers are being cleansed. The kingdom is being preached. What do you mean that's not the Christ? But I want you to notice something that seems very odd at first. Why does John ask this question? Look at verse two. It's not because he hasn't heard the deeds of Jesus. It's because he has heard about the deeds of Jesus. It says when he heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus, he sent word by his disciples. John, John is looking at Jesus and he is seeing something that he did not expect. You see it all through John's ministry. John shows up on the scene as the one prophesied by Isaiah who's going to prepare the way of the Lord, who's gonna bring about, call attention to, point to the one who's gonna bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And in Matthew 3, as John preaches, you have a very clear sense what he's expecting. He is expecting the Messiah to come and upend the religious system. He's expecting the evil to be brought down and injustice to be finally fixed, righteousness to come to the earth. He is picturing the Messiah, the Christ, as one who has an ax in one hand ready to chop down every unrepentant, unfruitful tree and then has a winnowing fork in the other 
to separate the righteous from the unrighteous, he is picturing someone who is going to come and baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist, he's expecting a cataclysmic event. He's expecting judgment to come right now and at the hands of the Messiah. And then Jesus shows up and John points to him and says, there he is. And then Jesus seemingly does everything wrong. Jesus shows up and instead of standing in judgment on sinners, what does Jesus do at the very beginning of his ministry? He joins sinners in the waters of baptism. And John, John's so confused, he literally tells Jesus no at first. That you don't usually say no to Jesus. He says, I'm supposed to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, no, this has to be done, that righteousness would be fulfilled. And so John baptizes him, not understanding why. And then John watches as the Holy Spirit descends from heaven on Jesus and the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the Christ. If you want confirmation, God's saying it. And then Jesus keeps going and keeps doing more things that don't fit with anything John expects. He doesn't go to Jerusalem, the place where the ministry of the Messiah is supposed to kind of orbit around. Jesus goes to the wilderness. He goes to the boonies. He's going to the small towns and the small places with small people. Jesus seems absolutely unconcerned about gathering crowds to himself. He'll care for them, but then as soon as he gets a chance, he steals away with his disciples because he wants to spend more time with this small group. Jesus doesn't perform society-transforming miracles. He doesn't part the Red Sea or free a people from slavery like Moses. What's Jesus do? Jesus, in far-off places and tiny towns, Jesus does miracles for individual people. People who are seemingly insignificant and undeserving at that. And Jesus, Jesus has gathered this little band of men around him and he's not preparing them to go to war. He's not preparing them to take up the sword and bring down men like Herod. What's Jesus preparing them to do? Matthew 10, right before this. He's preparing them to suffer. Not to wield the sword, but possibly to die by it in his name. And John, John's confused. Because he heard the Father speak. And he saw the Spirit descend, but the fire, it hadn't fallen from heaven. Society hasn't been transformed. And John, the prophet of the Most High, he is sitting in a prison cell knowing that an executioner's axe, it's coming. And that axe that he thought that Jesus would come wielding, it seems far from the neck of his enemies. If you were John, if you were John, what questions might you be asking? I think John is sitting there and going, what, what if I was wrong? What if after all this, what if Jesus wasn't the Christ? What if I pointed at the wrong man? And if I pointed at the wrong man, what does that make me? Am I here in this cell waiting for my death for nothing? So there's that question. 
Not the question of a man whose faith is dead because notice where he takes the question. He takes it to Jesus. But the question of a man whose faith is struggling. Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Christ? I need to know because everything has fallen apart and nothing has gone the way I expected. Are you the Christ or should I be looking for another? Help me. You know, that... That cry, that question, that has come from the lips of a thousand saints and many more. You know, it's the prayer, it's the cry that comes from so many of us when we lift up our voices and we go, God, we want to see you move here in this way. We want to see people saved. We want to see people healed. And then we pray and we ask, and God doesn't seem to do the thing that seems as though it would just naturally be a part of his plan. Now, I remember at the end of my first year in ministry, I was right out of college. I remember laying down in somebody else's basement by myself and just burying my face in the carpet and going, God, I have no idea what you're doing. I followed you. I went into ministry because I was sure that's where you were leading me. And I have, in every way that I know how, I have tried to be faithful, not perfect, but faithful. And yet everything that I expected, everything I thought would happen, all of it is seemingly crumbled to dust. What is happening? Because this is not what I expected. It's the cry of the little girl whose father left and who has been praying every day that her dad would open up the front door of their house and he would call her name. And every day wakes up and finds that he's still gone. It's the prayer of fathers and mothers who have cried out and begged God to bring their kids back to the faith of their youth, and yet seemingly God has done nothing. It's the cry of people who look and think, when I come to Christ, I'm supposed to have victory over my sin. I'm supposed to be free from these things, but then discover that sin, it, it doesn't go away quite so easily, does it? It's the cry of people like me who thought that depression was something that only shows up before Jesus and not after. And then it comes back. We live in a world where things don't always go the way that we expect. Where sometimes it feels like God, just like in the song, he has taken our face and he is shaking our shoulders and we do not know what to do. And this is where Matthew 11, I think, is absolutely precious. Because here's what Jesus says. You don't need to run. You don't need to hide. You don't need to be ashamed of those questions. Instead, you bring them to me. Because why is this text in your Bible? It's not for John. John got his answer. John, he is sitting in heaven staring at Jesus face to face. He doesn't have any more questions. It's not here to shame John. Jesus, in the verses right after this, he praises John and says, that's not a reed shaken by the wind. That is the greatest of the prophets. So why is it here? It's here because Jesus, he knows you and he knows me. And he knows that as those who live between his first coming and his second, there are things that we will struggle with and things we will wrestle with. And Jesus, in his tenderness and in his kindness, he wants you to know where to go. It's the invitation 
of a tender Savior who may upend all of your expectations, but who, as Isaiah prophesied, does not break bruised reeds or quench smoking wicks, but takes even people whose faith feels so fragile that the slightest breath would break it. Jesus takes that faith in his hands and he doesn't crush it, he preserves it. And he nourishes it and cares for it until it is fully healthy and alive. That's the one who invites you to come here. And he invites you to come with your questions because it is from him and him alone that you receive your answer. Come to Jesus with your questions and receive from Jesus your answer. John comes to Jesus. He asks him, are you the Christ? And Jesus, he does that Jesus-y thing where he kind of ignores the question and answers the one that he thinks you should have asked. <laughs> he doesn't tell John why things have gone differently than he expected. Uh, he doesn't say, John, yeah, I'm the Messiah. What does Jesus do? Jesus, in an indirect, roundabout way, Jesus points him to a who. Verse four, go and tell John. Notice who the answer's to. John, not his disciples. John's the one asking the question. What you hear, go tell John what you hear, the words you hear me speak and what you see, the deeds you see me doing. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, on the surface, this is a terrible answer. It's not a good one. Because why is John doubting? It's because of the very deeds Jesus just lists off. Jesus is going, you're doubting because you heard about me. Well, let me tell you about the same things again. Surely that'll help. What's he doing? Why is Jesus doing this? Notice something. Jesus is repeating the same deeds that John already knows about. But here's the significant world-altering piece. Jesus uses different words. They're not Jesus' words. They're the words of the very same prophet who gave John his sense of purpose and calling, Isaiah. Jesus is saying with every single line that comes from his lips, I am the one promised. And he does it chiefly through two passages. The first is Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, God is speaking to a people who are anxious and fearful that there's no way that God could redeem their present circumstances. There's no way he could make right all the wrongs that they've experienced. And God, through Isaiah, he says this, say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will restore every broken thing. He will come and he will save you. And here's how you know he's come. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is saying, John, I want you to look again, but I want you to look again through the lens of scripture. I am the one you hoped for. 
I haven't come in the way that you expect, but God, he has come and he has come to save and he has come to save through me. And notice what Jesus also does. It's subtle. He doesn't just quote Isaiah 35 and say, look at my deeds, it's me. He adds to the words. Did you notice it? Jesus says the deaf hear and the blind see, but he also adds two things that aren't in Isaiah 35 and one of which is found nowhere in messianic expectation. He says the lepers are cleansed and the dead are raised up. Jesus is saying, John, I may not be what you expected. I'm actually something infinitely better. Look at me. And he points him not just to the deeds of the Christ. He wants him to hear his words again too. The poor have good news preached to them. That's Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 verse 1 God pours out his spirit on the Christ so that good news will be proclaimed to the poor. Jesus says, John, have you been listening to what I've been preaching? You've heard about my deeds. You've heard about my sermons. Listen again. Matthew 5, blessed are who? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have absolutely nothing to offer who know they have nothing to offer and yet have come to me because theirs, theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew 9, Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and prostitutes and the religious leaders, they're sitting around and folding their arms and shaking their heads and saying, tisk, tisk, tisk. And what does Jesus say? I have come not to call the well. The well have no need of a physician, but the sick and I have come not to call the righteous. I've come for sinners. Matthew 11, very end of the chapter we're looking at right here. Jesus says to the weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, John, I'm the good news preached to you. I'm the one who cares for the poor. I'm the one who saves the sinner. I'm the one who takes the weary and heavy laden who cannot stand up under the burden this world has placed on them. I am the one who gives you rest. Trust me. And even as he does it, even as Jesus says, I am the one you hoped for, Jesus also takes John's perspective and he twists it because he says in these very same verses, I'm not what you expected me to be, but your expectations, they weren't entirely wrong. They were just out of focus. I mentioned earlier that it was significant that John or that Jesus added to Isaiah 35. Well, it's also significant what he left out of Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, God anoints his Christ, his servant, to preach good news to the poor, but the rest of that verse, it says this, to bind up the brokenhearted, and in words that are extremely significant to John who's sitting in chains, to bring captives to liberty, and to open the doors of prisons to those who are bound. 
What's Jesus doing? He's saying, I'm the one you hoped for. I am the one who saves. I am the one who will make all things new, but not yet. You know, Jeff, he gave this incredible illustration last week where he showed this picture that from one perspective looks like one thing, but then from another you realize it's actually something more complex. If you put that picture up, it looks, in that left-hand corner, it looks like a Civil War soldier, just a straightforward two-dimensional image. But when you pull back and you begin to move to the side, you realize that that one image is actually something more complex. It's a series of small sculptures that are spread out across the room. What looks two-dimensional is actually three-dimensional. What looks like one thing is actually multiple things. And Jesus, that's what Jesus is doing to John. He's saying, you were right. You saw that one image. What you didn't understand is that image, it was gonna be fulfilled in parts. It's more complex than you could ever understand. But here is your hope. If I have come, if I'm here, if I am the one promised by the prophet Isaiah, then you can know this, even while you wait in prison, even though the executioner's ax may fall, if I am here, then one day that redemption, it will be yours in full. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who even when they don't understand, who even when things go in a way they didn't expect, blessed is the one who holds fast because I am the one holding them. You know, we... We want an explanation. We want Jesus to answer our why. We want all the puzzle pieces to fit together so that we can kind of put it in our box and understand it. And Jesus in this text, he says, that's not actually what you need. This is what you need. You need a clear vision of me. You need to see and know and trust that the one who has come, he loves you and he has not forgotten you. And not only that, he is coming again. And when he does, it will be with healing on his wings. And here's the advantage that we have over John. John didn't live to see the end of the story. He didn't get to see the better words and the better deeds that are proclaimed to us at the table we're about to take. Because what do we know about Jesus now? Jesus isn't just the one who makes the deaf hear and the blind see from Isaiah 35. He's not just the one who preaches good news to the poor in Isaiah 61. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, who on the cross stood in the place of sinners, who didn't just go into the waters of their baptism, but underwent the waters of God's wrath. So that that good news he was preaching, it could actually be true. God speaks his answer to you, even as he spoke it to John here in this table. If you're sitting out there and you're going, Jesus, do you really love me? Jesus at this table, he says, here is my body broken and my blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're wondering if Jesus is indifferent to your suffering, 
he just doesn't care about the brokenness of this world, Jesus says, look at this table. I bore the suffering of the world in my body so that you would experience true healing and experience it in full. I'm not indifferent. If you're wondering if that redemption will ever come because it feels so far off, Jesus in this table, Jesus says, here is the seal of my promise. Here is the guarantee that what I have promised to do, I will surely do because what do we see and hear in this table? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as we eat this food and drink this drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. We live in a broken world where things don't always go the way that we expect, where there are moments where it feels as though God has taken our face and he is shaking our shoulders. But in that world, we don't have to despair. We don't have to give up hope. We don't have to shove down our questions. Instead, we can rejoice. We can rejoice because there is one in Jesus who says, come to me. Come to me with your questions and receive from me your answer. The one who has come, who loved you and gave himself for you, who speaks a better word over your life with his broken body and his shed blood. That Jesus, he's coming again. And here's the hope of every believer. He is coming for you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we have a Savior who has loved us in the way that you have. Lord, one who is tender to the broken, who is near to those who are needy, one who comforts the afflicted, and Lord, one who in every way meets us in that place of our doubt and gives us the only answer that can actually give us security and sureness in the midst of this world. And so we pray you would meet us now as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.